IOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. Chappie's Good Food on Main Street in Roxbury for lunch, dinner, and cocktails. And Chappie's sister restaurant, the Old Mill Steakhouse, just around the corner on Bridge Street. Chappie's open every day. The Old Mill Steakhouse, open on weekends. 607-326-7020 or chappiesgoodfood.com. Mountain Flame in Arkville, featuring a range of products for home heating solutions. A variety of fireplaces, wood stoves, and gas and pellet stoves are available and on display. For sales and service, Mountain Flame in Arkville. Warming home since 1980. Details at mountainflame.com. Rick's Tire Service, family-owned and operated on State Route 30 between Roxbury and Grand Gorge. Tires mounting and wheel balancing for cars, trucks, lawn, garden, farm, and construction vehicles. Open Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, Saturday, 8 till noon. More information at 800-LG-TIRES. 800-LG-TIRES. I'm Diana Mason, the host of Health Cetera in the Catskills on WIOX Roxbury. I'm also board chair for Catskills Pathways to Recovery, and I want to invite you to the 5th Annual Community Action Summit on May 12th at the Pine Hill Community Center or virtually online. This year's summit will focus on reducing the stigma that is associated with pregnancy, parenting, and just living for those in our communities who are dealing with substance use disorders and addictions, and their friends, family members, neighbors, and employers. Guest speakers will lead conversations about these issues and share community resources available in our region to help. Attendance is open to all, but registration is required. The Catskills Pathways to Recovery Community Action Summit, Friday, May 12th, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Pine Hill Community Center or online. Information and registration at CatskillsPathwaysToRecovery.org.
Okay, you are listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, and MTC Cable Channel 20, 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi, and everywhere at WIOXradio.org, on computers or smartphones, and also with the Radio Garden phone app. This is From the Forest, every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and Zane. Since 2010, it's 13 years strong here, Zane. Wow. How's it going, Zane? Good. Very good. What have you been up to? Well, I've been enjoying the nice weather. It's been very uh, warm out. It was about almost 60 degrees when I left the house this morning around uh, quarter to eight. Yeah, I got to shave my beard. (laughs) It's too warm. A little too warm. My face is very, very warm. Yeah, I've been keeping (laughs) mine trimmed down here and there. Yeah. Um, thinking about the weekend, I'm going to uh, Walton to pick up my uh, tree seedlings that I ordered. So I'm pretty excited about that. I got the whole weekend uh, to plant them. So right now, I'm thinking about the areas uh, I want to plant them and thinking about how I can prepare those areas with some sort of weed whacker or something to get rid of any grass or dry vegetation and make it a nice site. Yeah, spring is uh, sprung. The apple buds are starting to uh, green tip here in uh, in New York State, and um, I don't know. I'm looking forward. I, I like this time of year, April. I've, I've come to like it more and more because okay. it's warm, you know, and your body's so acclimated from the winter that 50 degrees feels great. Today is like on the verge of being too warm. And uh, there's nothing, you know, there's no lawn to be mowed yet or anything like that mm. nonsense. The weeds aren't up yet. And you can just kind of uh, enjoy yourself before uh, summer's jungle comes in, right? But um, and the heat, but uh, uh, yeah, and I, lo- you know, that new green, lush green is, mm-hmm. uh, it's nice on the eyes. Yeah, it really is. After seeing the browns all winter long, you know, you ever look at a photo from the summertime and, and say, "Geez, is that is that real?" You know, it just seems so green right. to you. Yeah, it's hard to imagine some of these hills the way they'll green up in, in the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. But we got a full show tonight, and tonight's topic is Diversity Explodes with Another Boring Burn with the USDA's Virginia McDaniel. She is the acting forest botanist ecologist with the USDA's Southern Research Station. Her current research is fuel consumption during prescribed burns, effect of prescribed prescribed fire on the ecological communities of the interior highlands, Effect of lightning ignition fires on tree mortality during drought and herbaceous flora of pine woodland communities. And let me see if I can get Virginia on. Virginia, are you there? I am here, yes. (laughs) Where are you calling from? Uh, Today I am calling from Russellville, Arkansas. Holy cow, Arkansas. I don't know anything about that state. So what's the weather like down there? (laughs) man spring is spring is wonderful here as well um we're a little farther along than you guys were some of the trees are almost nearly leafed out no kidding (laughs) are yeah the red buds are about over at least in the southern part of arkansas and uh yeah but the weather's still pretty nice it was cool this morning my ears got chilly went for a little walk looking at some birds um before i headed to work so that was nice so Um, did i get your title right is that still the case yeah. Oh, actually, I work for um, the Washita National Forest right now. Washita. Um, yes. 
yeah, as the acting forest botanist ecologist. Okay. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know how to say that. We were we were yeah. talking about that before the show and I said I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Washita is actually the French spelling of the indigenous word Washita and it means land of good hunting. All right. So, well, before yeah. we start yeah, asking so, you a bunch of questions, what got you into all this burning and fire and all that all stuff? All this burning. Yeah. Um I think it actually started in, in New York State. <laughs> I did a little a little job at the Albany Pine Bush Preserve and, and got some fire training there. And then from there, I went out to Utah. And um, I was really into plants. And then I realized that there was this thing called fire effects monitoring, where you could wear the big fire boots and do fire, like cool fire things. But you could also be a total geek and use a hand lens and look at plants. And... Uh, but kind of just took off from there, um, working with a fire effects crew in Utah, and then came back east to the Great Smoky Mountains, and I've uh, just been doing fire effects monitoring all over the southeast, basically, for the last 20 years. How'd you wind up at the Pine Barrens near Albany? I actually grew up in Troy, New York. Hmm. Holy cow. Yeah. Holy, I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, how about that? Well, you're not too far from Zane's uh, birthplace, then. Well, yeah. kind of, oh, really? but a little bit. Yeah, sort of. Where's that? Uh, Utica, New York. So oh, not, Utica, not yeah. Too far a couple hours. Yeah. Right, right. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, there's some uh, pine. There's the Rome Sand Flats that's known for having a, a lot of pine, dominant pine species there. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I haven't been there. Well, we have to talk to people from the south because us northerners know nothing about fire. Um, very little. Uh, New York State <laughs> right. does not really burn much at all, and um, I'm in the process right now of trying to ascertain information about how many fires happen on both state land and private, and it is not easy because there's not mm. many of them. But in any case, um, right. what is a general description of this Ashita National Forest? Yeah, the Washita National Forest. Yeah, so it's it's located in western Arkansas and eastern Oklahoma. Um, it's an east-west trending mountain range, so it's actually formed when the South American plate crashed into North American plate. Um, kind of formed a similar time to the Appalachian Mountains, and so there's kind of a lot of species overlap between the Washita and the Southern Appalachians. Um, it's mostly it's uh, mostly dominated by pine trees on the south slopes, shortleaf pine, and then on the north slopes, more hardwood trees. So there are a lot of a lot of different, lot of different oak species here. I think we have 40 oak species in Arkansas. Um, uh, I'd say the Washtenaw mostly has white oak, post oak, northern red, southern red, and black oak. Those are kind of the, the most common common trees. Um, yeah, and, and as, as for the height of the mountains, they're not. You guys would hardly call them mountains. They're. I think our highest peak is Mount Magazine. It's about 2,700 feet. Um, but when you get up there, I mean, you're kind of in a pygmy forest. It's often in the clouds, the, you know, the temperature drops a little, you know, the RH goes up, and you feel like you're high, even though, you know, you're only, I mean, anyway, at 2,000, a little over 2,000 feet. Yeah, so. that's relative, right? Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, what, kind of, what kind of dominant pine species do you have on that southern-facing slope? Uh, most, it's, for all the native, most of the native stuff is shortleaf pine. Hmm. We do have some native loblolly in the southern part of the state, but a lot of those are plantations. Um, but, yeah, there, there are some, some loblolly, too. So. 
So I, I pirated your presentation from the what was that again? The Oak. Um, oh, what's that organization you presented for? Right. It was the Oak Woodlands Forest Fire Consortium. Yeah, they got um, a great a lot of presentations on there. Right. Very they, interesting. Yeah, they do. I mean, you can look them up if you look Oak Fire Oak Fire Science. Um, you yeah. can find find them, and yeah, they do a lot of a lot of great work. A lot of you know informing you know webinars informing the public. They do field trips and web uh, webinars and uh, virtual tours and that kind of thing, and a lot of getting people together to talk about fire as well. So they're just a really great organization, and there's a bunch of fire consortiums across the country. Um, they're just just one of them, but nice. Yeah. So, Washita National Forest. What are, what are some of the historic accounts of this area in the study area? Um, you know, we already talked about where it's located. Um, open forest versus closed forest. I guess maybe define that. All that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of the forests that we've all grown up with over the last, you know, however old however old we are, um, have been uh, what's called closed canopy forests. Because in 1910, you know, the Forest Service kind of said, we need to stop. We need to suppress all fires. It was like the 10 a.m. policy. Like, we need to suppress all fires by 10 a.m. the following day. Um, And we were really successful at doing that for quite some time. Um, And what's resulted is these, these closed canopy forests. Basically, you know, you look up, you just see leaves. You look down, and you just see leaf litter. You know, there might be one scraggly little grass or flower trying to make it, but there's just not enough sunlight reaching the forest floor for anything to to grow. And so kind of what this project that I'm going to talk about today is a restoration project of taking these closed canopy forests and using thinning and prescribed fire to turn them into open forests. And what we found, at at least on the Washita, and I know this is true for a lot of different forests in the eastern United States, was if you burn off that leaf litter and allow the sunlight to reach the forest floor, there's all these seeds in the seed bank that just start growing, and you end up with this. It's basically a savanna. You have a prairie understory with widely spaced trees, um, and it's just a lot more diverse, and you find a lot more. And we'll get into that later in terms of species diversity. But that's kind of the the gist of what this this presentation is. And then I forgot your original question. Who who was Thomas Nut- Nuttall? You mentioned him in in your presentation. Oh right, you're asking about some historic accounts. Um, so I was going to talk about a couple of them. Um, one of them was the Hunter and Dunbar expedition. So, you know, you guys are all familiar with the Lewis and Clark expedition. Yeah, we all heard about that. But Thomas Jefferson actually commissioned four expeditions to explore the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and so this one, they were exploring up the Arkansas River from from the Mississippi River up to what's present-day Hot Springs, Arkansas. And so in this account, you know, they're kind of just talking about, they're talking about, how scattered the trees were, how sparse the understory was, how prairie-like it was, and they mentioned bison, right? We don't have any bison here in Arkansas anymore. Um, but the fact that there were bison here just means that there was enough forage, enough grass for them to survive. So that's kind of one one interesting account. Um, and then, yeah, Thomas Nuttall was one of the first botanists to travel through Arkansas, and he was traveling in 1818 and 1819. Actually, a similar time. Well, the other the other guys were 1804 and 1805. 
Um, and so he, um, I guess I can just read a couple of these quotes since you guys don't have slides in front of you, but he writes, in this direction, the surface of ground is gently broken or undulated and thinly scattered with trees, resembling almost this respect a cultivated park. The whole expanse of forest, hill, and dale was now richly enameled with a profusion of beautiful and curious flowers. Um, that's from his, his book, Travel Journal of Travels in Arkansas Territory during the year 1819. Um, so, right, he's noticing, he's noticing the flowers that were interesting, and then he also writes this, I found it equally undulating with the surrounding woodland. I perceive no reason for the absence of trees except for the annual conflagration. Um, and so conflagration, what he's meaning is fire. Um, so that's another common theme. I'm not going to go into all the different historic accounts, but a lot of them talk about smoke in the air. They talk about fire. Um, and, you know, one thing that Model also talked about is there was – you could – couldn't think of anything else that was keeping the woody vegetation at bay, right? You'd see kind of these woody sticks coming up, but then this rich, you know, that beautiful profusion of beautiful and curious flowers. Um, anyway, so that's kind of what, what, what he was noticing. Yeah, and, yeah so yeah. from that account, you know, a little over 200 years ago, uh, Arkansas was, looked a lot different than it does today. And he attributed that to the presence of fire on the landscape. Yes. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if that was true in the Northeast, too. I mean, that you could ride a horse maybe easier in our forest back then. Who knows? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to say in Vermont. I mean, some of those forests are, you know, what you get more rain and they're a little bit wetter. But, I mean, I know there's pretty good fires up in you know, like in the Boundary Waters in Minnesota, like when you have years that are really dry, that, you know, things do catch fire. And you think about jack pine. I was going to look this up. I forgot to. But jack pine has cones that are called serotonous, and so they, they only open when heated up by the heat of a fire. Mm. And so, you know, if you have cones that, <laughs> you know, the only way that that pine can reproduce is with fire. So obviously fire has got to play a pretty important role in those forests. Yeah, in our area it would be. Pitch pine, which is very similar to pitch to, pine, yeah, yes, exactly. Regita. Yep, yep. We have we have that down here as well. I think. I mean, I used to work in the the in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and so we had we had that that species there. We don't have that species here in Arkansas, um, but yeah. And, and what about you know Native Native Americans? I'm not going to Potawatomi. I don't know how to say that. Right. Um, I think it was Potawatomi. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I heard um, Robin Wall Kimmerer give a speech, and this was one thing that as I was giving these presentations of giving this presentation about this restoration a few times, and I realized that I was, I was talking about historic accounts, but I wasn't, you know, talking about the people that were actually maintaining these, this, this ecosystem. So in, in the case of Arkansas, it was probably the Caddo and Osage tribes that were, were doing a lot of the um, maintenance of the forest and a lot of the burning. So Potawatomi basically translates to people of the fire. Um, and I think one thing in, in Robin's talk, she talks about how I think her her ancestors were, you know, thrown in jail for 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 burning the woods, you know, because it was thought of as, as a, a bad thing to do. Um, so... Yeah, right. Yeah, we had her for teacher, right, Jane? Yeah. She oh, was, did you? Yeah, no she's uh, 
Yes, a professor at the uh, SUNY ASF Environmental Science and Forestry School in Syracuse, New right. York. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, she's, she originally, I believe, was a bryologist. She would study uh, moss. Mosses. Yeah. That's what my brother does. And then she's <laughs> made, made famous by her, her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, which is very interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, gotten, it's, uh, it's gotten very popular. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I've been I've been working on reading through that, and maybe we'll we'll get some quotes about that at the for at some point in this presentation. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, it's just a really just an, another a very interesting way of of seeing seeing the world. I think. And um, yeah, a lot of these natives, yeah. I mean, they burned, and they, and they saw that it had an effect on the landscape. They saw that it had an effect on what kinds and uh, the abundance of vegetation that came up afterwards. So I mean, they were very uh, 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 you know, linked to the landscape in a way that they were able to see these relationships and see the importance of fire on the landscape. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So it, it's believed. So just to walk our listeners through, it's believed that in the past, uh, maybe before settlers, it was burned quite a bit. Uh, more open woodlands, and, and then and then what happens? You, you know, the late twentieth century. Things things begin to change, according to your talk. Right. So, by yeah, by the by the nineteen eighties, and this is kind of where where the story and kind of the hero of our story, um, I'd say, begins. And that is comes in the form of this two ounce woodpecker called the red cockaded woodpecker. Um, so it's recently been listed as endangered by the Fish and Wildlife Service, and. In the Washita, there was it's it's typically a, a coastal plain species, so it lives in the longleaf pine forests. It needs open forests in order to forage, and then it also is an interesting woodpecker because it makes its home in living trees, as opposed to every other species of woodpecker that that uses dead trees. Um, but because of that, it likes to have trees that are older that have already started to have what's called heart rot. Um, it's called red heart rot. So that's a little bit easier to hollow out the cavities in those living trees. Um, but there was a disjunct population of the red cockaded woodpecker in the Washtenaw National Forest. And in 1980, because, because we'd been suppressing fires and most of the woods looked, was kind of this closed canopy forest, um, those populations were not doing very well. And so, with a little encouragement from the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Forest Service decided to start managing for this, this species. And so they decided to thin the forest um, to a basal area of, of 60. And so that's basically pretty wide, widely spaced trees and then using prescribed fire um, every three to four years. And so at the beginning, um, the numbers of the, in the first 10 years, kind of the red-cockaded woodpeckers, the numbers kind of stayed about the same. But then after 10 years, they just started that exponential increase. It's basically, you know, it's kind of like critical mass. You know, they had to get enough habitat, enough of that open, open ecosystem with the, like, herbaceous species had to increase all those different flowers and grasses that live in the understory. Once they really started started going, encouraged more insects to grow or insects to to come and as a result, you know, the we basically brought this species back from the brink of local extinction through through our management. And that's kind of that's that's the story here. 
This is a lot of work. I mean, so you reduce the, the density or the basal area, 60 square feet. Um, yeah. And then you did some burning as well, and then you probably had some controlled areas, and you also removed the mid-story, which are trees growing between the understory, the forest floor, and the and the overstory canopy. Is that right? Right. So they kind of have a smaller GBH, probably any trees under six or eight inches. Those were, were cut out. Um, yeah, and occasionally some some overstory trees too, um, yeah. but just whatever we needed to do to get that, that basal area to a level that was not going to be so much that it was just going to grow up into a shrubby mess, but enough that it was going to allow that seed bank to start growing. How are your markets there, uh, you know, for logging and stuff like that to make this happen? Um, I mean, the timber markets are are pretty good i mean they're i don't i don't i'm not a timber expert i don't know a whole bunch about that um but i mean i can tell this this a little anecdote since we're talking about timber and you guys are in the northeast um which was in when did hurricane sandy hit was that like 2012 i think somewhere in there yeah yeah somewhere in there so it apparently knocked out this bridge in coney island and it was like 16 foot uh pieces of timber and evidently they needed pine that was rated as dense and the only way place in the country they could find pine that was going to be that strong that was going to be able to make those planks was in the washington national forest and so yeah that's kind of the, the story of this project i think it goes back to when they started the project in the 1990s when they got all these groups together like at that point in the 1980s um, the Forest Service was doing a lot of logging, and there was a lot of litigation going on. Environmental groups and logging groups, everybody, nobody was happy, right? And so I think when we started this restoration, um, we got all these groups together and said, and we gave tours, you know, like, this is, this is what the forest looks like now, and then brought in, you know, whether it was environmental groups, loggers, scientists from universities, some, you know, the research and everybody came together to see what was going to happen. And then they just kept doing these field tours. And it's, if you ever get a chance to come out, I mean, you, there's, you can look at the control, and then you look right next to the control, and the difference is just astounding. You can't believe that those are the same forests. You know, one is just dense. It's just like a pack of leaf litter, a dense mid-story, and there's basically nothing growing there. And then you look 10 feet away, and it's just, it's like a prairie <laughs> with with widely dispersed pine trees. And you can just, even if you don't know anything about uh, plant diversity or insect diversity, you can tell that the other forest is teeming with diversity. And I think through these, through these tours that we gave, you know, we now don't, you know, people are really positive about the work that we're doing out here. Um, and there's a lot less litigation because everybody kind of understands the process and they understand um, the benefit that the work we're doing has on the landscape and on the biodiversity. And then the fact that we also are keeping local mills with with a supply of timber. I mean, the Washta, I meant to, I also meant to find this out, but we are within the top five um, timber producing forests in the country. So, Amazing. Yeah. So that we're, says a lot because you're doing growing. A lot. Yeah. 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 And I, I just think that's just, um, it's really neat that we can keep economies going and protect biodiversity. It's kind of the best of both worlds, right? I, I would imagine you'd have to credit credit that to your good forest management because 
I would think because we live in the tree area. I mean, we're the we're in a tree world here. It doesn't happen. All <laughs> and if on you're its outpacing own. us, I mean, I have to credit the cultural the culture there that rather than anything else. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. you know we we can barely stop the trees from growing. Um, yeah. What what right. what what is your biggest hurdle you think to convincing people of of these restoration pro- projects? Like, what are you trying to convince? What do, what do you feel you have to convince someone of? Um, or educate about rather. I mean, I think there's a constant education about fire, because when you see fire in the news, it's mm-hmm. it's thought of as a destructive force, you know. Or a prescribed fire got out of control, or this or that. I think that's the constant media message that that we we are fighting. But I, I would say that in Arkansas, people are pretty pretty used to for prescribed fire, so we're not fighting as much as other areas in the country. Um, but yeah, that was one thing where the idea of this talk came. You know, was that people get all excited about fire and and then or prescribed fires getting out and then you know the chief chief moore of the forest service is like 99.84 percent of prescribed fires go as planned right and that's what i you know they're kind of like just another boring burn (laughs) (laughs) and and but i also want to emphasize trying to emphasize the positive that these prescribed fires are doing that they are increasing biodiversity they are you know, saving an endangered species from its extinction. Um, yeah. I mean, if you look at the plants that are at risk of going extinct or on uh, states' rare species list, at least for the southeastern United States, most of the reasons why they're on that list is because of a lack of fire. And one place that you're going to find the, a lot of these rare plants is on military bases because they've been burning forever, right? <laughs> yeah. Just had a, sure. uh, you know, you know, so it's just interesting where you have this, you know, military bases and incredible biological plant diversity. That's embarrassing. I'm kind of going on a tangent there, but. It's kind of embarrassing. I mean, you know, a lot of those fires I started when we were firing downrange. <laughs> no, so they do have foresters. I understand that. Like when I was in Lejeune, they they do have foresters that prescribe burn, but a lot of times oh, it would yeah. they would they would get going through munitions. Um, yeah, yeah, and you see a yeah. bunch of Marines running around trying to put a fire out, but um, right, right. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It's the dominant kind of narrative that any disturbance in the woods is kind of something that could be controlled and should be controlled and mitigated. But um, that was one of the right. things that I learned in school is just the role of disturbance and how it can actually help rejuvenate and revive certain species. So this, this yeah, yeah and this, actually, can I can I can I just yeah, yeah. talk right Go there ahead. just about here's another here's another one of my things that I've, I literally just learned this last June, but, you know, everyone everyone talks about fire as, as quote-unquote a disturbance, right? And so, like, I have to credit Cecil Frost with this. Um, but he's like, well, is rain a disturbance? You know, like, well, not enough rain, that's a drought. That's kind of a disturbance. Too much rain, that's a flood, that's a disturbance. But rain in general, that just maintains, you know, your ecosystem. And I guess I like to think about fire in the same way, like, Fire is actually a stabilizing force. Fire is what maintains ecosystems. And it's like too much fire, like that's obviously bad, but not enough fire. Also, that is what causes, you know, the trajectory of ecosystems to change. 
And so, yeah, I was trying to, like, get the, the idea of calling fire disturbance. Think of it as more of a, a stabilizing force. But that's just the message I'm trying to pass on. So it's a good opportunity. Sometimes on From the Forest, we talk about the opportunity cost of doing nothing. Right. And so yeah. that's, that's, some, that's yeah, another way sure. to put it is that it's, it can be disturbing to do nothing, especially in the northeastern forest because of, you know, right. trees have different shade tolerances, right? You're basically killing your oak <laughs> if you mm-hmm. do nothing. And you're only imagining for, as much as I love this tree, sugar maple. You know, we have enough. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a break, but up next, I got okay. some more questions about you. And I want to ask your opinion on why diversity is a good thing. Um, you know, I, we, we we say it a lot, but a lot of times we don't define to to our listeners why it is a good thing. All right. So, okay. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to from the fourth. Tonight's topic is diversity explodes with another boring burn with USDA's Virginia McDaniel. Just yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone Suzanne, the plans they made put an end to you I walked out this morning and I wrote down the song I just can't remember who to send it to Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought I'd see you again You gotta look down upon me, Jesus You gotta help me make a stand just gotta see me through another day My body's aching and my time is at hand I won't make it any other way Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days and I thought would never end see you again I've been walking my mind to an easy time with my back turned toward the sun Lord knows when the cold wind blows it'll turn your head around and there's hours of time on the telephone line to talk about things to come my sweet dreams and flying machines and pieces on the ground See you, baby, one more time again. Always thought I'd see you, baby, one more time again. Mm-hmm. All right, 
This is from The Forest every Wednesday. Tonight's topic is Diversity Explodes with, with Another Boring Burn with USDA's Virginia McDaniel. So why is diversity a good thing? Um, I'd say diversity is a good thing. One reason is because of redundancy, right? If you only have one captain of the ship, the captain's gone, oh my, what are you going to do, right? <laughs> well, you have five different captains that can do the same job, um, then you're going to be okay, I guess, in terms of ecosystems. Um, that would be one, one reason. And, I mean, I think aesthetically also it's, it's nice to have a lot of different beautiful things in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it goes it goes back to your uh, you know stability, a force of stability. Um, di- diversity can bring in resilience to a system, right? If, it, like you said, if you knock yeah. out the captain, there's other uh, species that can take its place. Right, forest resiliency. That is a brilliant word. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> so abundance and diversity from yeah. restored stands. So the, you're, you're doing these re- restoration projects in the Washita. It's it's thinning. It's burning. It's Taking out the mid-story, opening up that woodland. What have you seen? Mm-hmm. What are what are the results? What are the results? Yeah. All right. So the <laughs> results are pretty cool. And as I said, we had a lot of different universities doing studies, and the Southern Research Station doing studies in this area in the early '90s, or late '90s and early 2000s. Um, so. We can go through the different species. That sounds good. Um, birds, they found that 16 species of concern were greater in the restored stands. Five species, I'll look at some, some uh, uh, examples like the red cockaded woodpecker, northern bobwhite, um, Kentucky warbler, the white-eyed vireo. There's a couple. Just a, Oh, and wild turkey. Yeah, so those all increased in the areas that were treated, and there were some that did better in the closed canopy forest. So I guess what I also would like to say is, obviously, we don't need to open up every single forest, because closed canopy forests are important for black and white warblers, oven, oven birds, scarlet tanagers. You know, there's some species that really prefer that. And we're not really at risk of doing that. I think, you know, overall, we've maybe gotten 20% in the open condition, 25%, and we still have, you know, 75 80% that's still closed canopy. Um, small mammals, none of them were, were detrimentally affected. There are a few species like the white-footed mouse, golden mouse, and sleeveless harvest mouse that did better in the open canopy. There was a seven-fold increase in the uh, deer forage or forage for deer, and you can just look at the systems and see that if you look at a picture. You know, um, bats are actually a huge deal right now. Um, the both the northern long-eared bat is listed as threatened, about to be listed as endangered. Um, and that species, that was one of the species that benefited by this open, open condition as well as other species. So, um, yeah. Why do you think there was a 98% increase in a northern long-eared bat despite the white-nose syndrome? What, what is it about oh, this open woodland? Oh, 
no, not I didn't I didn't know not a ninety eight percent increase. No, no. Uh, I mean it increased. This was actually this study was done before white nose syndrome hit. Sorry, okay, the study was you. published in two thousand seven. So these open conditions did help it, but now yeah, now its population has yeah drastically been reduced because of white nose syndrome. But just thinking about like those few bats that are going to be able to make it through. Um, white nose that are that are going to be resistant you know those they're going to need the best habitat to live in you know to survive so it's it's just nice that we ha- will have that for them i guess that's what i'm saying just more insects in the open woodland or what what's going pretty on much yeah yep pretty much more more insects better foraging um better foraging conditions butterflies and yeah, yeah. There's more. There's more butterflies. There's more. Um, and I guess yeah, the monarch butterfly. That's one species of concern. Um, actually, the the Diana fritillary used to be on the Washington National Forest sensitive species list. So that was one that was, you know, listed as rare by the state and that we were looking out for. And due to this restoration, um, its numbers. It is no longer on our sensitive species list because. The numbers have have increased enough. On the flip side, the monarch butterfly is not doing as well due to other other reasons, and so it has become on our list. But you know, we see it a lot more often in these open woodland areas that have a lot of nectar sources than we do in the, the closed canopy forest that mm-hmm. don't have any flowers. Okay. So, yeah. Is there any kind of uh, pro- uh, plants that were? Um encouraged after this burn that you you would like to have seen less of that were maybe too competitive or uh that were disruptive in some way like a invasive plant there was a slight increase in the frequency of some non-native invasive plants and some of those might just be because the, the plot was in a proximity to a road where Unfortunately, we had planted some of these, this uh, Theresia lespedeza. That is a plant, you know, in the in the 80s, one of the things that we were doing, I think, across the country, you know, different, lots of organizations were planting a lot of these non-native species because we thought that they benefited, provided forage for animals. And as a result, now we are working to rid ourselves of these plants. Um, so I'm not sure if the management has, increase them or it's just kind of opportunistic they're just right. taking advantage so that is something that we do need to watch out for um is is these non-native species but it's not i mean we're talking about an increase of like you know four there was like four species or four locations to ten locations you know not a huge right. increase but it's very negligible well, virginia yeah. what about the the timing of the fire how does that influence um, vegetation, flora, fauna, all that? Um, that is a really good question. Um, for the most part, the Forest Service, we do most of our burns in the, the dormant season, so from about January through April. Um, so right now, actually, I just talked to the FMO, and we have burned 170,000 acres on the Washtenaw National Forest this year in the last, well, I guess since October. Um but yeah, most of that has been done between um, January and April, and then to some extent, you know, a lot of times in the summertime, we're out 
fighting fires out west, so we don't have the fire personnel that are able to do the burns. Sometimes we're at what's called preparedness level five, where it's like kind of all hands on deck. We can't start any fires. We need to be helping to put them out out west. Um, and then in the fall, it's sometimes hard. This is a hunting seasons, and it's hard to find the personnel that are available to do the work. And then obviously you don't want to burn up anybody that's hunting. Um, so. Yeah, seasonally, most of our burns are done in the spring. I think that does have a little bit of a selection pressure. I think it would be better if you mixed up the burning. You do some in the spring, some in the summer, some in the fall. I think ecologically that is probably the best, but logistically sometimes it's hard to, to do that. I see. Any what yeah. are the impacts on on aquatic like you know riparian areas stuff like that? Has that been done at all, or is that unknown? Um, so it doesn't have a huge effect on riparian areas. And actually, we're just working on a video right now about water quality and this restoration work, and just talking about by you know by increasing all those grasses and forbs. That's actually um, slowing down the water from from going into <laughs> into the streams, right? And that's kind of what, what forests do is we they're like sponges and filters. And so I think this restoration work is actually increasing the sponge and filter capacity of the forests and kind of slowing that, that water and making less sedimentation when it goes into the streams. And we have verification from, you know, this, somebody that is in the water quality industry and provides the water for Little Rock. You know, she's, you know, on her, the land that's around the Lake Winona. Um, Lake Winona, which is the water source for Little Rock, they've been doing a lot of restoration work, and the water company actually has been buying up land and, um, using prescribed fire to manage the land. So they're just realizing the the benefits of this for making it easier to clean the water once they get it. Hmm. No kidding. It's less expensive once. So, being a little inarticulate right now, but sorry. That's all right. Um, so, I mean, is it just you burn it once and then the system kind of recovers after that is restored, or is there some... Uh, no, I wish it were that easy. Right, right. So maybe you can talk <laughs> yeah. about uh, the frequency of burning. Right. So most of our units, we try to burn them um, on a rotation about every three years. And if you go into a stand that hasn't been burned in four years, things just grow really fast here. And so it, those stands start to get hard to walk through because there's so many um, sprouts, oak sprouts, that are coming up. So yeah, we really try to try to burn on a rotation of about three years, and in order to really see this increase, I'd say you probably need three or four burns before a, a mid-story reduction, like we were talking about, getting rid of those those smaller sapling trees, and then doing three or four burns. That's when you start to see that herbaceous cover coming in. And one thing we looked at was, you know, the number of burns and the diversity. And in a lot of species, what we found was the more burns, the higher the frequency of that species, um, like woodland sunflowers. You know, with one burn, it was at 
you know, frequency of 30% of the time. And then with three or four burns, it's getting up to about 50%. So, so yeah, and so in some stands, then you're looking at 9 to 12 years before you can start to uh, see success in that restoration project? Yes, yes. And I think one of the reasons um, with the data that we took that we we saw rest the, the numbers increasing so quickly was that there had been some work that had happened before. And then so our initial measurement was kind of in the middle, kind of, you know, in the exponential curve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was kind of right where it was starting to go up. Um, was where when we put the plots into some of these areas, and so they were they were they were just ripe for you know the increase in, in the herbaceous diversity. So we kind of we didn't have necessarily control plots in this project, but we had um, two different management areas, and so one of them is called the renewal of the shortleaf pine blue stem grass ecosystem and red cockaded woodpecker habitat. So that's the habitat that since the 90s, you know, in the 90s, we were just starting doing like little burns, like 100 acres here, 200 acres here, that kind of thing for the first 10 years as we are kind of figuring things out. Um, now they'll go out and burn, you know, 2,000 acres with eight people <laughs> and, uh, and, and really do large landscape burns. Um, and then we were comparing that to another management area called the Washita Mountains Habitat Diversity Emphasis. And so that has, has similar management, um, but the difference between these two areas was that the red cockaded woodpecker, it started a little earlier, and also it was getting extra funding through this project called the Collaborative Forest Landscape Restoration Project. So this was like a nationally funded project that forests across the country applied for. And I think I think there were ten forests that got initial funding in 2012, and the Washtenaw was one. And so basically, that meant that it it got priority and it got more burning done than the management area 14. And so comparing these plots, we were able to see a real difference in the increase in diversity in the management area 12 versus the management area 14 that was, was getting less less work done. Where, where does it, we got about six minutes left. Where does it make the most sense to burn and thin? And where does it make maybe the least sense, I guess? What is it about the site or the, the forest? Right. I mean, I I think, you know, those south-facing slopes are areas that probably got the most most burning, um, south, maybe west-facing slopes. And, you know, obviously drier areas, you don't want to – we don't want to necessarily you – know, like when you burn, there's always a mosaic, right? You don't need to – if you're burning 2,000 acres, it doesn't mean 2,000 acres are turning black, right? There's creeks. There's moisture differences, and those things are going to drive where the fire goes. Dry years, it'll go farther toward the creek. Wetter years, it's not going to burn as much, and that is totally fine because that's providing refugia for all these hmm. species that, that don't need fire. <laughs> is it true that fires usually burn uphill, or is that, is that not always true, or how often? Oh, yeah, fires do burn uphill for sure. <laughs> they burn faster uphill. <laughs> and that's where I find the most pyrogenic vegetation in the northeast is on southwestern facing slopes that are on ridges yes for sure but here the washtenaw mountains are a little you know they're not as 
steep as your mountains. And so we kind of have more, you know, like those undulating hills that Nuttall was talking about and areas that are, you know, a little bit, a little bit flatter. So it's not only burning on, on slopes, it's also burning on, you know, some, some flatter areas as well out here. So just a different. <laughs> so, yeah, at the, at the um, Washita uh, park there what what would be the ideal weather conditions for a burn and also what would be literally the worst conditions for burning <laughs> i mean the worst is it's raining <laughs> right right, right. I mean, no. um I, I mean like right now is is ideal burning time um just because the rh is the relative humidity is low mm-hmm. the sun is out you know if the sun is out the sun is drying out the fuels um i mean i have done some work we had like we have lightning fires that burn in in drought conditions right and a lot of fires that are burning out west in drought conditions are causing catastrophic fires unnatural burning through the canopies crown fires killing the entire forest that's not the case here so much um does the wind direction matter like depending on where you burn i mean the wind direction just matters in terms of where the smoke's going and you don't want to smoke in a school or smoke a highway that kind of thing that's the main issue with with smoke is making sure you don't cause an accident or or hurt somebody you know putting smoke in an area where we're an old folks home or something like that 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 people don't need to be breathing that kind of thing um obviously you wouldn't want to burn on what we call red flag day you know when there's too much wind when Mm. it's too windy too dry obviously yes there are restrictions um on when we can burn and those are in the prescription so we write a burn plan that kind of tells us these are the parameters when you can burn you know there's a certain rh like if the relative humidity goes below 25 percent, then it's like nope you can't burn sorry um the wind is too high you can't burn what what about legal issues and and you know maybe you can't answer this but is this happening on private land private forest land in arkansas sure yeah. yeah, yeah. Private land, people are definitely burning on private land, like timber company land. A lot of prescribed fires are happening there. Um, yeah, yeah. People are people are pretty pretty cool with fire here. Wow, huh. yeah, that's not it's not the case here. I mean, we we have a long way to go. That's why we do these radio shows, and uh, right, it's not really happening in New York yet. No. What well? What advice could you give to maybe a landowner who's a little bit on the fence, a little skeptical of it, uh, using it as part of their management? Right. I mean, I would just guess I would just talk about um, maybe show them some pictures of. I mean, obviously, you need to look at their land and see what they what they have have going on there. Um, But just yeah, show some pictures about what the potential is and talk about. You know, the increase in species, if they like turkey and deer and butterflies, you know, <laughs> this might be a good option. <laughs> All right. If you're just tuning yeah. in, this is Diversity Explodes with another boring burn with USDA's Virginia McDaniel. Virginia, we got about less than two minutes. What, are, what, are your, what, are, what would you like to leave off on? Um, I'd, yeah, I'd like to thank you guys for, for having me on the on the program, and I think... That uh, managing forests, managing forests is is important, and we as as humans 
have an important role in understanding the systems where we live and kind of listening. I think I'll go back to Robin Wall Kimmerer, you know, and she talks about, she talks about, um, you know, in our culture kind of we think see humans as being the, the pinnacle of, of, of creation, whereas in indigenous culture they, they call humans the younger brothers of creation or something like that. And that they see that there's, you know, there's a lot that we can learn from from the plants and animals, that they, they can be our teachers. And she often talks about how the plants are her teachers and that we just need to learn how to listen. So right. I'd say that that's kind of the, my main thing. I think we just need to learn how to listen and learn how to observe and not just pretend we, we know everything. Yeah, and we can be a part of it. Um, at least here in New York yeah. State, I feel like uh, a lot of people perceive humans as just a cancer, and we're not going to solve anything until we're a part of it. Maybe yeah, yeah. We're here in New York, <laughs> but that's conservation versus preservation—that whole thing. But um, thank yeah, you for coming on tonight. Yeah, I know. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, we really appreciate it, and the show will be uploaded by next week. And and thanks again for taking the time. Okay. Cool. Take care. All right. Enjoy spring. Okay, you too. Have a good night. Bye. If you missed the show tonight, it was uh, Diversity Explodes with another boring burn with USDA's Virginia McDaniel. And uh, have a good night. Good night, everyone. Oh, the neon lights were flashing and the icy wind did blow. The water seeped into his shoes and the drizzle turned to snow. His eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low. And the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. For his castle was a hallway, and the bottle was his friend. And the old man stumbled in from the forest. Up a dark and dingy staircase, the old man made his way. His ragged coat around him as upon his cot he lay And he wondered how it happened that he'd ended up this way Getting lost like a fool in the forest And as he lay there sleeping a vision did appear Upon his mantle shining face of one so dear who'd loved him in the springtime of a long forgotten year when the wildflowers did bloom in the forest she touched his grizzled fingers and she called him by his name and then he heard the joyful sound of children at the game Garden Town, where the 